Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Figuru. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 6, Episode 17, My Heart Will Go On. Let's get this show on the road. So this was a fun little live watch that I had zero, like, expectations going into. Well, I mean, the title was pretty self-explanatory. Very early on, I put together, like, oh, it's gonna, like, something to do with the Titanic? I'm thinking, like, oh, the heart of the ocean was, like, cursed and they have to go get it or some shit. I didn't think it would be a revisionist history. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Last week was French mistake, correct? Yeah, that's right. But just, like, to have two in a row where I was so, like, unprepared for something so bizarre made for a really interesting... Well, my dear, wait until you watch next week's. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> All right, let's get ready for the recap. Count me down. Three, two, one. Titanic. Everything seems incredibly normal. It starts off, as you would expect, them consoling Bobby over the loss of Rufus. And then his wife, Ellen, shows up. And the boys get in their Mustang to go solve a mystery. And it turns out the people are dying because fate is after them. Because they were all not supposed to exist. Because they were supposed to drown during some sort of, you know, casual ship encounter called the Titanic. Which, in this world, is nothing but a regular cruise ship that made it to New York safely. Uh, Because Balthazar, or, uh, sorry, IP Freely, I believe is the name he gives, prevented the ship from sinking. And all the while, while it's played up in-universe as him just having a thing against, you know, the movie, it turns out it was actually Cass's evil, air quote, plan to make more souls because he needs them for some sort of soul machine gun, I'm picturing. Everything goes back to normal. They resync the Titanic and unfortunately lose Ellen and Joe, even though we never see Joe time. Yeah, I feel like the long game is going to be a little heavy this week. Am I am I wrong? Yeah, no, there's definitely a couple of things that I want to highlight here. I So I think that the first very interesting thing about this episode is that we don't really know what's going on, but we know that something is really off, like from the get-go, right? I, I think that's what's even better is that it starts off so, like, here is a grounded thing we are aware of. It's It's Bobby's reaction to Rufus's death. And, like, it seems like a very logical thing. And then it starts to unravel. And there is no, like... The show is usually really good at, like, showing us something crazy and having us figure it out. But they play it off almost, like, like sarcastically gaslighting the audience into believing this is the way it's always been. So that's the thing. Like, it starts with really small things. And one of those first things is that Dean wins at Rock, Paper, Scissors, <laughs> which is a first, Yeah, I think there was some debate about this during the live watch, but from what I can tell, it really is the first time. Yeah, no, no. I went back and I checked and I checked all my sources. And like, until now, we had only seen Sam win. He won in 217 Heart, and he also won in 419 Jump the Shark. And the whole gimmick is that Dean always picks scissors and Sam always picks rock. But here's Dean still picks scissors, but Sam picks paper. Honestly, thank you, because I feel like it's something that I wouldn't have noticed right away, but it had been brought up before, how there is like a consistent Dean never wins rock, paper, scissors, like you know if they're going to play, he's going to lose. So when he wins, 
even I was like, oh, this is strange. Things seem weird. And all of you smile going, oh, wait, wait till it gets weird. <laughs> all you saw were like a bunch of faces on Zoom, like smiling from ear to ear. Despite that kind of weirdness, we still find out that Bobby is still mourning the loss of Rufus, like you mentioned. So like, even though a bunch of stuff is different, some things are still the same. While there are some small drastic changes, like people being alive who shouldn't be, or things like the baby being a different model of car, there is still like enough of the status quo that the universe feels like our universe just slightly off. Slightly off, right? And and okay, so speaking of baby, in this, you know, version of this universe, the brothers are driving a Mustang, which is actually a really cute nod to Eric Gripke. Because originally, he wanted the boys to drive a Mustang, but apparently his neighbor convinced him that the like that an, a Chevy Impala was like a cooler car, <laughs> especially in between the two. So like, I'm also going to highlight that like the Mustang also has the original Kansas plates as opposed to like the Ohio plates that we've come to know since season two. That is pretty interesting. And I also kind of like the idea that like that means Kripke wrote somebody convincing someone to get an Impala over another car into the show with John. The other big thing that we find out is that Ellen and Joe are alive. And not only that, but Bobby and Ellen are married. For as much shit as I give the show for just like dunking on Bobby constantly, he like never gets a break. As much as he still ends up without her ultimately here, he doesn't remember it. So it's not as bad for him at least. But for us, we get to see a potential world where he wins, which I still love. We do get the beloved line from Dean, accidents don't just happen accidentally. I want to know if that was improvised or if that was legitimately a written line. Either way, it's magic and whoever put it into the world, thank you. We find out that the Titanic almost hit an iceberg but didn't sink. Uh, and we find out that it's because Balthazar alerted the captain to the iceberg in time. Now, he starts by saying that it's because he hates the Celine Dion song, but we find out that it's actually to create 50,000 new souls for Cass to use in his civil war in heaven. And so, seeing as we just mentioned the Celine Dion song, I just want to say that, like, I'm no Celine Dion fan, but even I recognize that Celine was and always has been huge. To say that if she hadn't sung, like, My Heart Will Go On, she'd be a destitute singer somewhere in Quebec. Like, I mean, it's ki it's actually kind of insulting, in my opinion. <laughs> like, to give you an idea, she didn't even want to sing that song. She recorded it in a single take because she didn't want to have to sing it again. She was so tired that day. She was like, oh, whatever, I'll just sing it, whatever. So she was, she didn't need this. Okay, so there you go. This is my little Quebec defender. <laughs> That's when Dean or Sam, whichever one of them likes Celine Dion more, I know, I think we know it's Sam, but in this world, maybe it was Dean, should have caught on that that doesn't make sense, Balthazar, that's a bullshit reason. And that should have been the, the defining moment of like, what is the real reason for this? This is the first time where we encounter a book with people's deaths written in it. As a consumer of anime, I am very worried to know that you said first. Atropos tells Cass... We had a script until the day of the prize fight. You threw out the book, which is a flashback to Swan Song, but also to the line, which I love, we're making it up as we go along. It's been revealed to me that we don't really get Atropos as a recurring character, which I kind of get. Like, I don't think we needed to have her as a continuous villain throughout the series, but like, 
I like the concept of her. I, I would have liked to maybe explore her a bit more as like fate as a character. But I really liked her use in this episode. She was very, very fun. I would argue that her the role that she plays is going to eventually be played by another character. But we'll talk about that when the time comes. The last thing I want to highlight is that Cass says freedom is preferable. Ooh, I have a lot to say about that line and cast this week. So this week, our theme is agency, and it has a Latin root in a verb that means to set in motion, to drive forward, to do, to perform, but also like to incite to action, to keep in movement. And the reason that we selected this theme was because of the tension in the narrative of this episode between like fate and free will. And we really kind of wanted to explore the free will aspect of it all. Would you like to get us started with Dean? Yeah. So actually, I had a super hard time finding examples of like where this theme pops up for the characters this week. And I thought that it could be interesting to kind of like compare the unsunk Titanic verse like with our regular canon verse and look at like what's the same, what's different, and then try to figure out what's due to circumstances and, uh, you know, or like external factors, for example, and like what might be related to the character's agency or free will. So I think that's a brilliant way to look at this, especially with Dean as a starting point. As I pointed out, I kind of love the weird symmetry we get in this episode compared to last week, where it was an alternate universe where it was so different versus here we're seeing more of a like what could have been like it's it's a little more grounded in the reality of the show and what we know uh like they're still hunters dean still seems to be dean uh, you know the dean we know and love he doesn't seem to be a drastically different jensen obviously i think had we had more time we could have explored more and seen like like i have so many questions in this world like how did this affect the way John raised him, how did this affect his coming out? How did this affect his being closeted? Like, are him and Cass in the same level of a relationship in this world? Like, I have so many questions. And that's kind of the thing, right? Like, if we're going to focus in on, like, little things that do happen in the episode, the first thing that I would like to talk about is the Mustang. Because, as we know, in 403 in the beginning, like, it is Dean that convinces a young John, or a young Jonathan, for those who have been watching the, the Winchesters with me, to buy the Impala instead of like the station wagon that he was originally going to buy. And so that means that something changed in that moment when Cass sent Dean back in time, right? So like either there was no Impala at the dealership or like for whatever reason, or Dean felt that the Mustang was the cooler of the two cars. So like we don't quite know what happened, but we know something happened. Well, we do know a little bit more than that, actually, because when Balthazar does bring up you guys in another world used to drive an Impala, Dean goes, like, confused, like, what's an Impala? Balthazar implying the Impala never existed. Does that mean Chevy never existed? Do we see a Chevy in the show? Like, it's one of those moments where, like, it seems like such a small detail, but he's implying that an entire brand of car never existed. Is, does, that, does he really say that? Mm -hmm. I was blown away, but I thought it was really funny. Just like the, what's an Impala? It's like, yeah, don't bother. All right. So then we do know a little bit more about that. Wow. When we're talking about agency and free will, like, it had we not learned this detail, it very well could have been what led to 
Dean in his free will to choose the Mustang over the Impala in that moment with John Jonathan? Or was it a bigger butterfly effect and the Impala doesn't exist? And how does that like how would that scene play out? Was it just a Mustang versus the station wagon? Or this to me is emblematic of what I love about these kind of moments is it goes both it could go either way. It could be as big as it never existed to as small as his personality ever so slightly shifted. And he's not a car guy. Now, the second thing which I want to talk about a little bit more is that I found that Titanic vs. Dean was a bit lighter than the Dean that we've come to know. And I I didn't know if this was like a deliberate choice from like the script, the direction, the acting, or if it was just because, you know, like, oh, it's a funny episode, so we're going to make Dean funny, which is something that we have seen on this show a lot before. But then, like, when you think of the fact that, like, Joe's not dead, it it starts to feel a little bit more deliberate. Or at least, like, I didn't feel super weird about reading into it. And I think that in a universe where Joe is not dead, Dean isn't as sad. So while my pre- the previous example of the Impala can be, like, can be chalked up more to the idea of a butterfly effect, you know, we do have a concrete piece of connective tissue here. We can like literally draw a line between we know a moment that hurt Dean and negatively affected his outlook on the world. And he now has that moment erased effectively because Joe is still alive. And not only would that be better for him, he's probably able to have a good relationship with Joe, you know, where they laugh and share jokes. Like I literally imagine Dean with a strong non-romantic female friend would be like the best thing for him. So lighter Dean makes perfect sense to me in this world. And I think also in this in this universe, like they are, you know, their family, even, I mean, I don't want to say even more than before, but like, I think because Ellen is married to Bobby, I think that that means something too, right? Yeah, like I, I would not be surprised if in like Dean's way of like connecting with people, he used that as an excuse to like consider them like you're, kind of like my stepsister now almost in a weird way and they like joked about that and that was a bonding experience for them right and the thing is like we don't really know how that happened like we don't know if dean was able to save joe or if joe was never really in danger of death and in abandon all hope we can't really know how much of dean's agency influenced this outcome like if at all really and i know that this is supposed to be a funny episode but i find that really devastating I weirdly have an argument here that I didn't realize till right now that I think their agency in every one of these decisions plays a lot more of a role than we think it does. And that's because we literally have fate stating there is no longer a script. That there is a moment in time, i.e. Swan Song, where the book was thrown out and the script of fate is no longer valid. So in theory... Everything happening since then is 100% agency. Right, since then. Absolutely. Yeah. So given that Abandon All Hope happens... Before. Oh, before Swan Song. Oh. Oh, that is really interesting then. Oh, okay. Never mind, I'm backtracking here. No, no, no. But I think that you have a really, really good point, though. I think that we have to keep that in mind. Clearly, most of Season 5 happened the way it happened because they ultimately stopped Lucifer, got Sam back, and that seems to have, as far as we can tell, happened as it was planned to, for the most part. Like, there was the showdown, and that happened. 
So what changed in Abandon All Hope or around that time that prevented it? Was it because Bobby and Ellen were closer and they had each other's backs in a different way and they were able to protect Joe? Or Again, it, I could do this for hours. So let's move on to Sam. Um, and I want to talk about rock, paper, scissors, because like we know that he always picks rock because Dean always picks scissors. You know, he's a smart cookie. So that's going to happen. Now, obviously, I have some really fucking devastating fan and explanation for that. <laughs> so some people say that Dean always picks uh, scissors so that Sam can always pick rock and that that way. Like, Dean has to go to whatever situation is, like, less desirable or, like, read more dangerous. So, basically, it's just another elaborate way of keeping Sammy safe. So, cry with that what you will. I love this explanation. It so clearly speaks to the two of them. But it also means that there is something in their relationship now that is fundamentally different. Not good, not, not better or worse, but just different. Exactly. And so knowing this, why would Sam pick paper in this universe? Like, is it because Dean doesn't always pick rock? Is it that he hasn't figured out after all these years that Dean always picks rock? I don't really believe that for a second. Like, otherwise, Sam is not a smart cookie in this universe, right? Or is it that Sam has more of like a protector role in this universe? And again, and again, we don't know. We don't know because we're just given like this 30 minute overview of it. And so we don't have enough information to say for sure what we think is going on, which again means that we don't know how much agency Sam has in this particular story, which again is devastating to me. Sam and Dean's relationship, like I said, it's different enough that either the roles are reversed as you position potentially Sam has taken up the main character role a little more in his mind. Maybe maybe he was the one who somehow stopped the thing that happened to Ellen and Joe, and he feels more alive because of it and more protective, and he's taken over that role. Or what I kind of feel in my heart is this was legitimately a truly fair game of rock, paper, scissors. You know, they're at a point now where they trust each other enough that things seem to be better with them. That one doesn't have to like actively throw a game of rock of chance to protect the other one anymore. Maybe John died in this one, like earlier. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe John is dead, like from the very beginning, and so Bobby raised them. And so they're that's why they have a more of a sibling feeling rather than like, you know, sibling with parentification. We, we find out that one of the people who worked on building their house was a descendant of someone who should have died on the Titanic, and they screwed up something in the house. So when there was the fire, uh, they got the kids out, but John didn't make it. So he died with Mary in the house, and they were raised by Bobby the whole time. And they're now both perfectly normal, insane humans because the of The actual fucking dream. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love how the actual fucking dream is John died in the house fire early. <laughs> I mean, it's literally what I wished for on the first episode, Drew. Like, you can't tell me that this is not my dreams come true. I know, I know. There's actually just rub that in sometimes that your dream come true is Jonathan dies early. Jonathan, yes, Jonathan died early. So if we're going to talk about Bobby, I think it's important to talk about the fact that like in 
Titanic verse, like he's married to Ellen, which again, like under what circumstances did this happen? Like how long have they been married? Is it recent? Would it have been before or after Abandon All Hope? Like we, we don't know. But we do know that it shows that Bobby wanted connection and partnership and that he made decisions that led to fulfilling that need. And, and like at the end of the day, that is the literal definition of agency. Yeah, it feels like we're seeing a world in which our classic universe Bobby is living his true life and given the right opportunities, this is what he would do in our current universe. He just was never able to get close enough to somebody. Uh, and I think like Ellen is the first person who he could get close to while still revealing who he truly is. Because I think we do see it in the the very Bobby-centric episode, which I'm forgetting the title of. Weekend at Bobby's? Weekend at Bobby's, yes, with the adorable neighbor who brings over the cobbler he never gets to eat. I feel like there is a part of Bobby that would have loved to have, like, gone over and, like, had pie with her and, like, maybe started a friendship that could have become more. But obviously, she gets in the crossfire of hunting and it doesn't work. And with Ellen, that isn't a problem. I also feel like somehow I could squeeze in that John not being there to ruin the relationship with Ellen would mean that Ellen and Bobby would get to know each other sooner. Oh my god. But I'm telling you, John is dead in this universe. I'm like, I need this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I need someone like to write Bal- to say you. You're calling up Balthazar like, hey, uh, you want to go back and try it again? So, Balti, uh, we need to talk. Now, the last thing that I want to talk about with regards to Bobby is that during the live watch, we sort of like collectively noticed that Bobby was a bit more grumpy with the boys. Like they were a bit more like not afraid to talk to him, but like almost, you know, like and not in a bad way because Dean is still joking with him like, hey, grumpy, you know, like and he was just but he was he was overall like more abrupt with them. And I I wasn't too sure how to read that until just before we started recording. But I'm going to let you answer first, <laughs> because I think that you, you came up with the exact a very similar way. answer. Yes, exactly. That level of like grumpiness, kind of like being able to show your true colors around somebody. And I feel like they've always sort of had that. And here it's just amplified slightly to a more familial degree. And I think familial or familiarity is the key word here. And to me, it seems like Bobby, like, despite all these world changes, his agency and takes the boys in the way he would have in the other universe. But this also, I feel like, leads him to taking them in sooner and knowing them more and, like, raising them more closely than just, like, as Uncle Bobby and more as, like, Father Bobby, that the relationship does change. Like, you know, I think we all kind of joke about being the cool aunt or the cool uncle, like... You're a nine-year-old, I'm, I'm the cool uncle, and you know it. And, like, I feel like if I were a parent, I would try to still be the cool parent, but, like, it would not have the same effect. You don't want to be the cool parent. It's not a good place to be. Eventually. And that's it. So Bobby going from fun Uncle Bobby, who we can get away from John and go see Bobby and be safe and sound, versus Bobby is just dad. It would make sense that it wouldn't be a strained relationship. I'm not trying to say, like, they have a poorer relationship. But, like, the way you're able to be a little more your own colors around your adult children who know you more. Like, you know, you don't have to try to, like, pretty it up. This definitely had, like, the feels of, like, when I see some of my friends interacting, like, with 
their siblings and their parents today, right? Like this definitely had that. And um, it's it's just really funny, Drew, because like I, I was taking notes earlier and I'm like, I don't know what to make of that. I was on the couch earlier and I'm like, you know, maybe it's just because like they're closer, right? <laughs> Because they didn't have another father figure. Because for a John died. Of time. Oh my god! I can't believe we're making like. I, this I is love, our but I love how it fits every single thing. I know. Like, I kind of hate it. I love. Maybe I love it. I hate it. I don't know. I hate that it didn't happen. But anyway. So you're saying we could have had fifty thousand more souls on Earth. Cass could have had his war against heaven won, and John would be gone sooner. Where's the downside of this universe? <laughs> I, I I don't know. <laughs> Ellen and Joe are still alive. Like, I don't know. All right, let's talk about Cass a little bit. Because I think that he is like the big ticket of this episode and arguably like the one that is at least displaying the most agency. It is so interesting here that while he is the character with the most agency this episode, he is the one kind of like pulling the strings. He's to to use the notes I wrote because I love the fact that I wrote this in a moment of writing was he's being a sneaky little mastermind all this time I've been trying to work towards like Cass being more human and discovering free will and like making decisions and now he's taking it too far and it's like I don't like the choices he's making these are bad choices oh no I know that's that's what happens with with free will right you can make good or bad decisions this is every super villain origin story and I oh. hate it <laughs> but but you're so right though like Cass's behavior is really something in this episode because like we so we the audience find out that he was the one to order Balthasar to unsink the ship and he's the one who tells him to go back and resync it and he's the one to reach the agreement with Atropos specifically for the safety of the Winchesters or should I say when Sam asks so you killed 50,000 people for us Cass takes a long <laughs> soulful look at Dean <laughs> Make of that what you will, but Cass wanted to make sure that his boyfriend wasn't going to be killed by fate, is how I'm going to see it. Oh yeah, this to me does not only display Cass's agency, but like his humanity, because at the same time, like as much as free will comes with the ability to make decisions, some maybe not the most good decisions, you know, he has an opportunity to potentially gather the whatever MacGuffin millions and potential thousands of souls he needs to power his magical war-winning soul device but he makes the choice not to he could sacrifice dean and sam and save heaven but no it's not worth losing them i just love how dean is like the nepo boyfriend here <laughs> just constantly saved by an angel literally it's constantly saved by Cass. i just i love it when they're having that conversation at the end of the episode like Cass completely admits to tell the brothers that he was the one who sent Balthazar in the first place. So all Sam and Dean know is that Balthazar went back in time to unsink the Titanic of his own free will and then went back because Cass asked him to or told him to, I should say. But like that is just not the full picture. That is lying by omission. Cass, just letting you know here. People don't take kindly to it. We agreed agency was a great theme for this episode. I feel like we were very light on the theme with Sam and Dean, Bobby a little more so, but I think it's really because Cass is such a... like. Despite him not being in the episode much, this is a Cass episode. Because 
we're truly seeing Cass, a character who traditionally, as an angel, should not have agency as, you know, God's plan, destiny, fate, whatever you want to call it. And then we, as fans of the show, fans of Cass, celebrate Cass learning to have free will. But now we're seeing that, like we said, village, village, villain origin story mode here, that too much of a good thing can be bad. And suddenly, the all-powerful being who has free will and has feelings for a human can suddenly do some amazing and horrible and horrendously amazing things for him and to him. Do you think that Cass is going to become a villain? I didn't think of it until now. I am, I could see a short arc of it, maybe, but I don't think that would happen. Let's move on to critical time. This episode was written by Eric Carmelo and Nicole Snyder, directed by Mike Roll, and it originally aired on April 15th, 2011. I mean, hey, it took me but completely by surprise, and I love when I can be surprised by TV. It doesn't happen as much as it should. What's in the Hunter's Journal this week? I always prefer the movie. In most cases, I'm not a big reader. I'll stick to audiobooks. Clearly, vocal talent from actors like this is a true skill, and any voice actor around, no podcaster maybe, should be super proud of their work. But it weirds me out how this could have happened. Like, how much easier life might be if the Challenger space shuttle didn't make it to space and hadn't opened that wormhole to hell. We might be living on the surface of Earth, enjoying the sun and that sky, they call it. Sure, our best scientists have made these underground caverns livable and even nice, you know, given the circumstances. But what would life truly be like if history were different? Anyways, my once-a-month break is nearly over. A short film and a, some journaling time before another 30 days of hunting. Gotta keep our demon overlords fed and happy if I want to live to see another film. I hear the next one's about some unsinkable ship that actually ends up sinking. Wow, what will they think of next? You unexploded the <laughs> Challenger? <laughs> I unexploded the Challenger, but made it a bad thing. <laughs> I was like, I honestly, I had the idea, but I couldn't think of an event like in history to change without being like... Like, I had a few come to mind, and I'm like, I feel like those, that can be problematic in some cases, but I'm like, not killing a bunch of cool astronauts, and then turning it into a weird hellscape was just a really weird, fun idea. <laughs> so I went, I went unexpected <laughs> and off the chain. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. My pleasure, and your slightly more grounded and realistic thoughts for the week, I hope? Well, I'm not sure that they're going to be grounded in reality, but let's talk about them anyway. Um... So when we watched this episode with our patrons, someone pointed out how much they wish that Karen had been brought back instead of Ellen. Now, for those who might not remember, Karen was Bobby's first wife. And I found that comment really fascinating because it honestly had never occurred to me, especially since Karen had already been brought back. And I was like, well, they're not going to do that a third time, especially now that like Bobby has had to kill her twice. And I sort of felt like a third time might have been just like a little bit too cruel. But it sort of forced me to think about like why the show decided to have Bobby married to Ellen in this universe. And I think for me, like there's two big answers that come up. Uh, the first one meant that they could bring back Joe and show what Dean is like in a universe where she's still alive. And even if we never saw her, we know that she's alive and well because like Ellen is on the phone with her, right? It's just funny how they can have a character be part of an episode even when the actor is unavailable. But that's neither here nor there. The second thing is that it shows 
like the wasted potential between Ellen and Bobby. Now, like, I don't think that before this episode, I had really ever thought of Ellen and Bobby together. But like, I, I think that like, this episode talks about the fact that under different circumstances, Bobby would have found love and companionship again. And I think that that's like, again, like another part of the tragedy of this episode. I, I think there is like a weird, right, like critical, like very using critical time here for this, where like the, like when, I, when he finds out that, oh, if we fix everything, they lose Ellen and Joe. And he's like, obviously, no, we can't do that. We'll find another way. But I think if it had been Karen again, it would be that much more heartbreaking and difficult. Like, I don't want to say one is worth more than the other, but I think having Karen specifically torn away from him again in such a brutal fashion would have really been rough. Whereas Ellen, I don't think is particularly easy. Clearly the emotion is there and he clearly loves her and he clearly wants to protect them both. Um, but I also think I really like your point of bringing back Joe, despite not seeing her, her existence does mean something to the universe. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like at the end of the day, like Bobby, the boys, like none of them had a, a say in sinking or unsinking the ship, right? Like Cass made that decision. That's, that's the person who made the decision. So like nobody willingly gave up Ellen or Joe. Shall we go see what our community has for us this week? This week, we have a message from Jacqueline. And before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, is this episode a time travel episode or an alternate universe episode? For our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk. Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a very short clip. Jacqueline writes... Hi, Mary and Drew. I really tried to do this in a voicemail, but as I tend to ramble, I always end it at 11 minutes. I'm going to try it in a mail. I want to respond to your interpretation of Season 5, Episode 9, The Real Ghostbusters. More specifically, to Mary's comment on how she feels the fans were the butt of the joke of the episode. I agree that they could have cast more female cosplayers. I also think that choosing Damien as the main Dean cosplayer is extremely important as he is in openly queer relationship with a person of the same sex. But I have to go back a little because when Mary also brought up the fact that the actress of Letitia Gore got hit on by multiple deans with the same line and only takes Dean up on the offer because he is handsome. However, she actually said that he doesn't seem to be afraid of women and she'll therefore take the drink. And I find that line important as we all know how Dean flirts with women and how he flirts with men. One of which he is very confident in and the other he is extremely nervous. And then he meets Damien, and yes, he tells him to shut it, but Damien later tells him what Supernatural really is about. That it is about having a brother who would die for you. And I always read this as two brothers who would do anything for the other. But Dean doesn't know how Sam actually feels about him, because they never talked. He only knows that he dragged him back from Stanford, and was recently betrayed by him. I find it very important to emphasize that the episode shows that the fans of the books know more than even we as fans, and more importantly, Sam and Dean themselves do. Because Chuck wrote it. He wrote down their thoughts and what they do when the other is not around. E.g., I'm full frontal. And what happens to the other person when they aren't there? Becky knows where the cult is because Chuck wrote it, information that wasn't even available to us fans. 
But back to the point that Damien is not straight, and they could have kept the fact to themselves or for just us viewers. But they made Dean aware of the fact Dean was made aware that Damien, who cosplays Dean, is in a homoerotic relationship with his partner, who he met through Supernatural. Fun fact, it's almost like he was made self-aware. <laughs> I love that. And Dean's face falls. Not in a homophobic way, but I see it more as a, huh, that's possible. He can do the job while being in a homosexual relationship. I want to point out that we see this reaction in a later episode again. I think Mary might know which one I'm referring to, not the 300th. So, all in all, I see it more as a way to show that the fans of the books are all-knowing entities, whereas the brothers only know what they tell us each other and what they live through. They know more because Chuck wrote it down. I hope you understand where I'm coming from. I'm sorry if it's too so long, maybe even too long for the podcast. To round it up, I wanted to tell you that I love your podcast now even more because of the Hunter's Journal. Keep on doing what you love and buy. Jacqueline. I really love this interpretation that I never had even thought about like the fans of the books knowing more, which is so true. And so like, obviously, now that you've pointed it out, Jacqueline, like it, it is so obvious, right? Like I, <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed that I never thought about it. Um, so thank you so much for pointing that out. Like, I love this this message. Uh, it was so well put together, and I think it's a beautiful thing to bring up. Also, I'm blushing a bit because you mentioned my Hunter's Journals, and it's always so nice to hear people like them. I'm not going to, like, I'm not, like, farming people to be like, oh, I love them. Do more. I just, like, it makes my heart, like, flutter when I hear that, uh, that my writing actually does good. I re also really, really like what you're pointing out in terms of the flirting and how uh, Letitia Gore, or, like, the, you know, the 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 actress who plays Letitia Gore is noticing that the other deans are like afraid of women. And so, and yet like the real Dean is like particularly good at flirting with women, but becomes like an actual disaster when he's getting hit on by like by a man or when he's finds a man attractive, you know? And so I think I find that really like a really great observation and just overall, like, thank you for, uh, for bringing all that up, you know? And I think that this is truly like, because I, I remember this episode and I remember saying, like, I can never tell with Supernatural, like, what's going on if they're making fun of, like, the fans that they have or if they're because it feels like they're doing both because a lot of the compliments seem a little underhanded. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, you guys know so much about this show, but y'all are a little crazy like Becky. And so it just sort of feels like a little underhanded sometimes. But, uh, but I absolutely agree that there is room to look at this as like the fans know as much as Chuck, which I find really cool to think about. Um, which on a meta level should have maybe take, been taken into account at some point. But anyway, moving on. Thank you, Jacqueline, for your voicemail. Still, I still want to talk to Chuck. Like, we haven't confronted him since that season. But I think what I want to gravitate to in this message is my favorite line is the concept of the readers being all-knowing and how, like, with Becky, they clearly point this out and her knowing where the cult is when theoretically no one else should the only reason she does is because she has more source material than they do even in their own lives and i think there is something about that that unintentionally speaks to us outside of the show as the fans 
being that we are allowed to know more than they as the characters know and allow us to better understand the show or grow and learn with the show, which I think is a really weirdly apt like realization for the show to bring forth of like, we understand that you as the fans have access to more than the show can provide and all this meta context, which you can use to better understand and learn from the show. Well, a lot of the meta context is also created by fans, right? Like a lot of that paratext is created by fans. Uh, and even this message does that. It helped me learn more about the show. Ouroboros all over again. This was phenomenal. Thank you so much. And I will keep writing Hunter's Journals. Do you have any thoughts and call to action for this episode? I think we've all had that, like, you've seen that meme or that joke where it's like trying to fall asleep in your brain's like, hey, remember that embarrassing thing you did like a thousand years ago that like no one probably remembers, but will haunt you for the rest of your life because that's the way your stupid brain works? Do you know that there's a scientific explanation for why that happens? Oh my God. Is there? Do we have time to talk about it really quick? Yes. It's actually because when you're falling asleep, like your system, like your nervous system sort of regulates itself, right? Enough to be able to fall asleep. And so your brain is like, hey, you seem like you're in a good spot right now to start thinking about this memory that you haven't processed. So that should make you feel called to actually process that memory properly. I, and the worst thing, and I'll be honest, like this very specific one, I have tried to deal with in ways that I feel are good and I've done whatever I can. I've reached an end point where I'm unsatisfied and there's never going to be closure and I've learned to accept that a little bit. And I feel like this episode has called me to like do that more recently in the sense of, I mean, it's in the past. I can't change anything. I've I've done what I could do. I have taken the steps needed to try to ask to properly ask for forgiveness and try to heal didn't work out other things do work out or you learn to move past but ultimately it is the idea of the past is behind you 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 can dwell on it but that's not gonna change it so all i can really do is learn from it and grow and do better next time and that is that is my call no butterfly effects here just i made choices i need to live by them and i need to do better and what have you thought about or been called to do this week? So the theme of this episode is sort of, is is actually quite apropos with what I'm working on in my studies right now. And so it's it's like very present and like at the forefront of my mind lately, particularly because I have some trouble um, kind of embracing the principles or like the, you know, what is called in academia, like the theoretical underpinnings of uh, agency because I keep thinking about like the external factors that influence our behaviors uh, or at least influence our lives. And so like, no, for example, like no matter how much work you put into like getting either a dream job, for example, or like reaching a specific goal, like if you're black or indigenous, like you will face more issues and challenges. I feel called to like really think about the relationship between agency and determinants because I feel like sometimes we're always like, oh, if you work for it, you can do whatever, which like, I mean, I get, but also like, I don't think is entirely true. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigou. 
Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, Katira, L, and Jeremiah Thomas. This week, we'd like to thank Jacqueline for their message. You can find the links to all of our social media and our merch store at carryingwayward.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to us. If you like Carrying Wayward and you'd like to support us in our project to go through all 15 seasons of Supernatural, you can support us through Coffee or Patreon, and you can find those links at carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Record. Thank you, Robot Lady. As you can tell, I'm still at my mom's. Ooh, I heard that. Ooh, it came through good. I'm having another yeah. one of my uh, my gin drinks. We've uh, we've restocked the fridge. We have a guest for the weekend, so we've been doing mm. some drink shopping. Very cool. I am drinking water from my mom's like little carafe. <laughs> was so cute. Matching glass. <laughs> oh, I love that. I know. I love that too. I'm like, oh my god. Um, we have a very specific question this week. And it's one that, like, I read it first, and I was like, oh, what an interesting question. I think it's an easy answer, and then I've been debating it nonstop since I read it. Uh, So the question is, is this episode a time travel episode or an alternate universe episode? So if I can begin. Of course. my, My issue is that, like, I want to follow the, like, comic book Marvel universe version of how you would answer this. Okay. In that, like, it's technically both. The way that Supernatural has defined time travel is that even if you go back in time, you can't change it, right? So, like, Dean goes back in time and he ends up, like, choosing the Impala, which is the car that he's had his entire life. So, basically, it means that, like, a previous version of Dean, like, you know what I mean? Like, Dean was already yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, the grandpa paradox it, almost. It's, it's a, a closed it's, loop. Yeah, Ouroboros in alchemy, the idea that there is a a finite circle of everything. 